Enjoy soul and welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? I'm very good, thanks. You? Yeah, good, mate. I'm glad to get the first episode with Dave Owens out and get people listening to it. Yeah, brilliant response. Um, I listened to it back the other day and, um, yeah, just he's got a natural recall of facts, you know, a phenomenal recall, really. And, um, yeah, incredible knowledge of Welsh music. You couldn't really get a better first guest, could you, for a podcast like this? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm just glad with all the sort of little sort of diversions it went down, you know, from uh, telling David Bowie uh, to introduce himself with good night instead of good evening. <laughs> His uh, recall of the recording of The Big Three by the 60 Foot Dolls and who could forget that first meeting with the Mannix. Yeah, and talking of the Mannix, we've got another great guest on for episode two. We've got a poet and playwright, Patrick Jones, otherwise known as Nicky Wire's elder brother. It was great to spend time with him in his home, very kindly welcomed us in to his home up in Blackwood with some lovely Welsh cakes and a cup of tea. Yeah, and um, his, his uh, new album, Renegade Psalms, has been one of my sort of favourite sort of Welsh albums of the year with John Robb, who's the uh, revered music journalist going back for like, God, 30 odd years now. I'm um, listening to his podcast, which has got um, interviews with Nirvana and early uh, interviews with Richie Edwards and Nicky. And yeah, really worth a listen, so have a look out for that. And um, yeah, Renegade Psalms, you just don't see sort of lyrics like that, really. Um, yeah, we do talk about that quite a bit in, in, in the podcast. It'd be quite interesting to hear how people respond to that. Um, I hope you enjoy the episode with Patrick and we've got some new music at the end of the episode which we're hoping to be uh, a mainstay on, on the podcast so if you're a, a new or unsigned band please get in touch either by email or any of the socials that's Welsh Music Pod on Twitter or Welsh Music Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and we'll definitely feature it at the end enjoy so Patrick welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast thank you so much for uh, yeah, uh, giving you. us your time uh, today um, how's it going? Okay, thanks. Yeah, looking forward to this. A bit like a Joe Rogan setup here. <laughs> so to set the scene, we're we're in Patrick's um, back living room. Yeah, you call it that yep. dining room. Um, yeah, yeah. Books everywhere, as you'd imagine. Musical instruments and uh, um, very welcoming hospitality as well. The, the best, uh, the best Welsh cakes in Blackwood. <laughs> <laughs> First time I've made them, yes. Okay, so um, you've recently released uh, an album, Renegade Psalms. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, definitely. It, it was um, sort of a, a, just an idea I had a few years back. Um, I work with a, a musician, which then didn't work out. And so I had all these poems and things. Um, obviously, I couldn't use the musician's music because that was that was his copyright and um john robb who, who runs um louder than war records was going to release our our little album so i approached john and i just said um john uh, it's not going to happen the album now would you be interested in a, in a sort of a spoken word album just pure poetry no music you know like sort of linton crazy johnson john cooper clark stuff spoken word um, and he's and he emailed back and said oh i tell you what i'll do the music which i was i was just quite thrilled because he's you know he's quite a uh, an eclectic artistic uh, artist really who just does lots of different projects you always see him cropping up on bloody um, um, BBC breakfast time talking about veganism and or you know he's, he's just an interesting artist I think which is you know quite rare these days is it right that you hadn't actually met him in the flesh? It was done through no. iPad and a yeah. very sort of modern approach. Yeah, totally. Which is again, some people might think, "Well, that's a strange, but strange connection." But but how we we, we I would just send him the poem, he would respond to it musically, send it back to me, and we built up this portfolio of work. Then, um, so it was quite organic, really. And it and it just and I didn't meet him then until the gig we were playing up in Keris Matthews Festival, Good Life Experience. I picked him up from the train station. We sat in the car then and went through the set list and, and ran through it. I knew we would connect sort of thing, but it, it, it could have gone all, all wrong, really. And we could have, you know, not really um, 
uh, you know, connected well together. So yeah, it was all done through digital and then um, we performed live and it just felt very natural sort of thing. How did the uh, the music differ to the, the first um, collaboration you did? Was this more what you had in mind? Yeah, I, I think um, the musician is more of a, uh, is, uh, was a, a guitarist, songwriter, great what he does, but, I, I, but the poems then sort of became more like songs, whereas with John's, he just left the, 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 the poetry speak for itself and then sort of underscored it with um, sort of more atmospheric pieces, really, which, which just works for the album, I think. Yeah, obviously, you tackle some very sort of powerful issues, uh, Brexit, austerity, the bedroom tax, housing inequality, yeah. um, major injustices or references like Orgreave and Hillsborough and Grenfell. I don't want to bring um, the sort of manic up too soon but um what i was thinking was i've known nicky's gone on the record of saying like stuff like um if you tolerate this and kevin carter wouldn't quite sort of resonate the same now but what what do you think in terms of like obviously it's a very political time now we're living in how how, how has it been received well the opposite really i think people are really hungry for this sort of uh dialogue and things to be put out there and people to be brave in what they say i think because i i think these things need to be talked about really and if we just stay quiet then the powers that be are going to railroad over, you know, humanity. I feel, I feel we need to, I feel a time of protest is really, you know, is really ripe. So I, but I've always written, I haven't written just for that, you know, for now. I've always written that type of sort of, sort of stuff really. And um, for many years, perhaps people just, just ignore me, which is fine, you know. Um, but it just seems now when I, when I do readings, people come up to me and say, oh, I'm glad you've written about that. Or my, my friend had their benefits cut and they didn't know what to do. And, it was just this good connection, you know, because I think poetry and, and all great art is about, it's not just about me going on about, about things, it's about uh, connection and how I suppose you don't feel alone in your struggles, really. So I feel really we need more of this sort of um, stuff and, and I'm just, you know, glad to be involved in getting it out there. Amongst the political sort of topics that you, you cover, there are universal truths of hope and love that, you know, is spread throughout, throughout this work. Yeah. Is that something that you're, you're conscious about? Yeah, definitely. I, I know I didn't want to make a sort of Joy Division album, just totally bleak um, with and, and hopeless and grey. Even though there's room for that, I I I, I do feel you know, um, I suppose a sense of that we need to cling to hope. We need to talk about things. We need to you know share our knowledge and bond together and stand up to things. And and people are doing that for many different issues. You know, from Extinction Rebellion to the People's Vote March. You know, to stand up for refugees because. It just seems as if the right is rising. So in a way, I was just trying to find hope in in, in the protest against this sort of right wing intolerant, intolerant sort of wave that we are, we are finding from Trump to Johnson, Farage, Brexit Party, etc. Um, and I think you know this tiny little glimpses as well. Obviously, um, I, I lost both my parents within the last year, and um, I think I've I've learned to to hold on to little glimmers of, of beauty as well. And there's a few moments in there. There's a poem called uh, Bring It Back Home, which is just about never never giving up, really. I suppose never submitting. When you were growing up, I assume it was a household just packed with sort of literature and poetry and music. <laughs> no? That's really funny, really, because, um, you know, we were a very working class family, you know. Um, and I smile because it, that sort of resonates a bit in a way, like I suppose the way I've tried to bring my kids up. And I'm a bit in a way, always pushing things on them. But my parents never really pushed things upon me, Nick. So it is quite strange we turned out the way we did because there was always music in the house, you know, but it was never classical music. It was Demis Roussos or Abba or Boniem, Elvis, you know. So it was, <laughs> and we always had books. But again, I never, it was never any sort of, I think uh, as parents these days, you know, um, I think we can be too pressurised. Hey, 
go to drama lessons, go to, you know, swimming lessons, all this endless pushing, I think. Um, and I've been guilty of that with my my boys. So I, um, but but growing up, it was just quite an organic process. That I think, you know, I think it, sometimes it's, it's just about, I think Kathy Burke said this, she said about, it's about being bored sometimes as a kid and you, and in that board and then you you sort of find some creativity. You think, you think you just, you know, you're not covered with screens. We, we didn't have that in, in my day, obviously. Um, and we didn't have many structured activities. It was literally just sat on a wall <laughs> watching the sun. And I'm not trying to romanticise it, you know, you know, but it was a sense that, yeah, what do I do? What do I think about? And so it was a very, um, yeah, a, a simple upbringing, I would say. Um, but my, my mother was a very um, pro-animal rights activist and environmentalist. So that filtered through a little bit, I think. And my dad, my dad um, um, kept a diary for 50 years, which is just the most amazing. And I've got the diaries now. And um, so I think in his own way, you know, to me, that's great writing. That's what writers do. So very subtly, perhaps it was all filtering down somehow, you know, um, uh, to me and Nick. And and also we both never liked having jobs. So we just had to do something. (laughs) How did it all start with you, uh, your career? Yeah. Well, I never think of it as a career, I suppose. It was was always just a bit of a a mishmash of, um, you know, as as, as all our careers are, really, especially if you go into creativity. Um, It was... It started off. I, I I think it sort of kicked off when I was I was I went to Swansea University, which is a fantastic you know learning environment. But I was quite naive, and all I used to look forward to was playing football on a Wednesday afternoon, basically, and trying to get a date with a you know someone <laughs> a female. So I was I was quite a, an innocent. Oh, this is quite an interesting world down here uh, in Swansea, uh, which I thought was another 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 world really yeah. compared to. Uh, Blackwood, but um, and then I discovered the um, uh, the Beat Generation writers. I did American literature, and all of a sudden, it just all started. Um, you know, writing wasn't boring, wasn't the way it was taught in school. It, it became sexy and cool and romantic, and um, uh, yeah. And I just, I suppose, I just started writing myself and terrible things as you do at that age, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, sort of ages. Um, but music had always been. Perhaps I forgot to mention, music had always been a, a big pathway through me uh, my life going back to the uh, late 70s um you know from my heavy metal phase to then discovering you two the alarm big country billy bragg so music in a way i never thought i'd be a, a writer really because i i suppose i just dreamed of really playing the guitar really <laughs> but uh, never the manics would never let me join they, what they say they always t- i was too fat and too ugly Aww. but I mean, look at the state of them now <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've rambled on, but I suppose it started, it really, Swansea University, American writers. Were you there thinking, at the same time as um, Nicky and Richie? No, no, I, I had I had left then. Um, I think Richie was in the first year when I was in my, I was doing my fourth year, because I, I, I had spent a year in, in America, which I had a grant for, which is crazy thinking back to go um, and study in, 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 I was in Tennessee. So, um, yeah. So, no, they, and, and then Nick went then the year I had, I had finished. So, um, yes. So you're pretending to be Jack Kerouac out in, yeah. in America doing your own version of On the Road. Yes, that's right. Yeah, sort of. And then, then I came back, finished my degree, and then I thought I, I, I needed to go back. So then I went back and did, I did try to write the Kerouacian novel and never, you know, I had one poem published in a magazine or something. And um, But then I stayed in America for four years, really, you know, odd job in write, pretending to be a, no, I, you know, I say pretended, I, I was a writer, but no one else thought so, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And you went out to Germany for a bit as well? I did. That was the weirdest experience. That was after university. I needed to get some money. I didn't really want to work in a factory around here. So it was like 
soccer coaching, football coaching, on an RAF base in Germany, which was the most, and I lived in the officer's mess. It was just such a depressing environment, you know, you know, I'm not meant for that, an army base sort of thing. <laughs> it was just terrible. But but I like working with the kids, but it was a sense of, um, you know, r- 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 you know, we had dinner at a certain time. I remember one morning I was out early for a run. I looked over and it was like a group of, of men with their shirts off being told to um, do press-ups because they had obviously, it was a punishment. I thought, oh, it was quite, you know, but but I, I remember earning some Deutschmarks at the time. So <laughs> that's why I ended up in Germany. <laughs> yes. Would your first sort of overground success have been Everything Must Go? Yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Definitely, which was, I was 33, 34 then, so it was a, it was a long apprenticeship, I think. Um, so everything must go, yeah, I had come back from America, I had, I had two small books um, self-published of poetry, and I did lots of readings, and then, I don't know why I wrote, wrote that play, it was just, just came out of sort of um, feeling a bit frustrated that's right and it was also about you know it was cool Cymru at the time but I didn't feel it was that cool I think living in the valleys um, in 1998 that would have been I suppose um, I felt it was quite a dark time and, and there was a lot of you know struggles and you know a lot of drug use and unemployment and rage going on I felt so so that play came out of that time really thinking back um, so we started off as a little long poem I, you know I I still, in a way, don't know how to write a play. A play, to me, is it morphs into different directions. And so it, you know, I don't think it's a set way, really, as long as you can tell a good story. And, and I just really loved the characters I was writing about in, 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 in those days. Yes. Did the title predate the album with the same <laughs> yeah. name? So it's a certain band nicotine, I thought, was it? Or? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I could show you the picture upstairs of um, that I took. It was it was on a shop that was closing down. They said, "Your last day, everything must go." And I just thought that that sums up where we are in life yeah. in a way. You, especially, the, I almost called it "Your Last Day," but that seemed a bit too specific. So everything must go. Yeah, but you can't copyright. So I remember telling Nicola, and then obviously the album came out before my play because yeah. plays take a lot longer. But um, not that it matters, you know. There <laughs> we are. But. Uh, that is that is the true story. <laughs> so over the years, you've done an amazing amount of community work uh, in terms of mental health and literacy, and you've never shied away from dealing with sensitive uh, subjects like domestic violence in Revelation yeah. and dementia in um, Before I Leave in recent years, um, just to name a couple. One thing that um, I, I wanted to chat with you was music as a form of therapy. Mm. Um, I experienced this myself just last week. My grandmother's in a dementia home in Trowbridge in Cardiff, and a lot of the patients there you know can't remember conversations from one minute to the next and yet one of the staff put on an Alexa speaker and it was music like Doris Day, um, Vera Lynn, um, Frank Sinatra and it was incredible to see the transformation in these people and just remembering it word for word really incredible. It's one of the most moving, moving things isn't it like those words stay lodged in our minds yet like as you said we, we couldn't remember maybe our husband's name or what we did an hour ago but the way the I, and I think there is a, you know, like a biological reason for that. The way I, I think music, musical memory is like unaffected by by forms of dementia and, and, and the sort of related um, problems with it. So, uh, but obviously it, it, we don't know it's there until it's like triggered by a song which connects with that person or a melody. And it is like a, it's like in, I, I started liking it to uh, in Awakenings, you know, that film Awakenings, yeah. um, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams where they sort of had a moment of becoming alive again. And it's like a music, almost like fires those neurons in our brains. And for a moment, it's, 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 it's beautiful. It's then people sing along, connect. 
You, you, you must yeah. feel a sort of tremendous sense of pride. I, mean, I imagine you have a lot of feedback over the years with pe- people you've personally helped with your sort of work and in the community and with your plays and poetry. Well, not, not, not really, I would say, no, you know, um, I, yeah, I just do what I do, I suppose, sometimes. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful when people, um, you know, in the community work, um, you just go in and you do, and, and there's a lovely, funny story which sort of puts it in perspective, if I could share that with really. yeah, you. I, I was up in a nursing home in Bargard, Real Valley sort of uh, town, and I did a writing workshop and they all went well. And in the group, they were all women and there were three three women who were over 100, which is quite amazing, really, in a, in a small group, seven or eight. And we talked about um, what poems are important. We did some memory exercises. Um, some were living with dementia, some some weren't, you know. And then... Like I said, as a writer, you see, or as a creative person, you feel, oh, I've done my good, my, my bit for the, for humanity. It's a bit arrogant sometimes, I think. So I, I, I learnt my lesson anyway. And so I was there. And then the matron came in and asked all the people, how, oh, how did it go? You know, how was the session? I was, I was all quite sort of proud thinking I've helped these people, you know. And then I was, remember, it was one lady called Phyllis and uh, she had a pink smock on, you know, when the sort of, a smocks that um, Valley's women would have when they're like a cleaning, you know, she still wore that. She was 103. And so, what did you think, Phyllis? And she goes, well, it's nice to see a man in it. <laughs> that was the level of feedback. That was, that was it. And I remember thinking, yeah, okay, well, you know, that's the, so, yeah, bollocks to the words. It was, uh, <laughs> so, in a sense, I, you know, I, it's nice to feel you connect with people and and the plays and and, and, and poetry. And I suppose that's different to the community thing because that's, that's um, yeah. You, you tend to strip away your ego and forget your own needs, I think, in those sort of situations. But then when we, yeah, put our, our books, perhaps the ego come back, comes back in and it's nice to be, um, to, or to feel that you've connected or, or, or touched someone and made them feel less alone in their struggles, etc. So, uh, yeah. What about um, your work helping you? Obviously, your your book, My Bright Shadow, uh, published through, through Rough Trade, yeah. obviously helped you rationalise and understand the difficulty that you've had in your personal life. Yeah, definitely. It was, you know, it's, it's quite hard. You know, I, I think for a while I couldn't even, I couldn't even say my mum my died. That word died. It was always passed away or, you know, yes, lost. So I, so I did a lot of reading and I read a lot of other writers who had perhaps written about... Um, you know, how they dealt with loss of loved ones. And um, and I, I had been writing poems when my mum was diagnosed with leukaemia. So along that journey for a year, I collected all these different poems, which I did get to show her, which I was glad towards the end sort of thing. And then I suppose then after she she died, I um, I thought, you know, it's like a testament. You almost want it, keep the memory. And I became a bit obsessed with keeping my mum's memory alive. And so I, I suppose I really concentrated on trying to get this little book out, really. Um, and yeah, it, the pro, it's almost the process helped more than, cause I, sometimes I struggle to read the poems out loud now, but I, I know they're there and it's almost like sort of a living testament in a way to my mum's life and the way she was. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a strange duality of helping and then the, the certain days is like a block to, to, to read in them because I'm scared to go there even. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not saying it's going to ch- sort everyone's out everyone's like a gr- gr- grief process out by writing but it's it's part of that process part of that journey yeah completely different sort of aspect of your writing actually um i remember reading last year that um i don't know how f- sort of far this has gone but um 
you and Nikki were sort of working on a comedy script <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, intro to sort of this country and human remains mm. inside number nine that sort of thing will it see the light today or uh, not for a while I we, we, have, we did try it with a few sort of uh, you know companies and things like that but they didn't seem to go for it which is yeah because me and you know Nick and I we've, we've grown up with, with uh, humour has been a very big part of our lives even though we're quite serious dark people you know right, right back to Forty Towers the young ones the office etc just it's always and Nick's always saying oh have you seen so and so and that so uh, we share that similar you know it's like the absurdity of the world that sort of awkward you know ness of, 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 of being human really and uh, we've loved that so and the concept was just in a record shop and we just thought that's a beautiful setting like a, like a Spillers diverse uh, vinyl or whatever to, um, to set this and it's great you could have so many characters so many situations so many um, a bit like your podcast really was about using a song or an album to sort of trigger dialogue and and what it meant to someone in a comedic way in a darkly funny sort of way but um yeah we didn't get too far with it but but it's still there and maybe maybe one day we'll it will come out but it, it's also a nice release sometimes just to write something a bit away from you know uh, ranting against the monarchy and Boris Johnson and your own personal struggles it's nice to sort of laugh at things a bit and um, and of course it had music in it so it was good for research So what would your typical sort of writing routine be? <laughs> yeah it's a good question really I'm not one of those writers who gets up at six and, and religiously writes for five hours I just haven't got that sort of discipline and I'm a bit older now and I like to go for a swim in the morning or something or a walk so it's, it's a little bit um I wouldn't say I wouldn't say chaotic. It's more anarchic, I suppose. I'll, uh, um, and I got to a point where I only do it now when I really feel I I want to do it. Sometimes I'm not going to force myself. So p- writing a play is different to say a, a poetry. I just feel I'm shelly sometimes. You know, parading around spouting poetry into my book. Whereas a play, it's much more structured sort of work. So um, yeah, but I'm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to do both, really. So I, I get by somehow. <laughs> and you're learning Welsh. Any plans to write in the Welsh language? Um, I've, I've incorporated some Welsh words because I'm really fascinated by the etymology of you know the, the language, and I just like the way a word will look on the page. Sometimes, you know, the Welsh word for independence, Annie Bunyaith. I just like the sound of that and the look of it. So. I'm slowly learning. I, you know, I, at my age, it's, it's quite traumatic. Actually, you know, going into a class and 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 uh, um, standing up and learning. But uh, I don't think I'll write a full poem for a while. But uh, I actually um, yes. had the yeah. highest coursework mark in Whitchurch High School history for a Manic Street Preachers Wells project. <laughs> All right, okay. So, well so done. although we've got uh, Sam Warburton, Garen Thomason, Gareth Bale in our school, I, you know, I wouldn't swap places really. <laughs> so, Patrick, what we try and do with the uh, the Welsh Music Podcast is to um, is to get a guest on like yourself and ask them to elevate a Welsh album to the Hall of Fame. We had David Owens in the first episode talking about 60 Foot Dolls, his debut album, The Big Three. What's your chosen album? It is Declaration by The Alarm. I did a lot of thinking about this. And it was it was lots of different, but 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 that's, you know, in your mind, you sort of paint a picture. Um, I, I, had, I had a bit of Budgie, actually, but I, you know, Budgie, which is quite a sort of metally sort of early 80s band, but it didn't have enough resonance, I think, to me. But where's The Alarm? Whoa, when I started thinking about it, and so I listened to those songs again, it all came flooding back. And I thought... It was quite a, a moment, I think, in, in sort of Welsh Welsh music, really, because to me that was the first, you know, Welsh band that I thought, even though they didn't, you know, fly the flag and stuff like that, there was a certain, yeah, depth to it, and um, I, I thought it was quite a sort of a full of 
protest and there was that 8045, which was the minor strike, a nuclear arms race and pressing the red button. And it was quite a destructive sort of time. And I remember just listening to that album and just thinking, this is quite... Quite passionate, full of hope. You could you could see that it was a bit of a legacy from the Clash, you know, uh, in a way. Um, but you know, playing acoustic guitars, which is quite quite interesting to see. And I I loved it here. I remember my Peter this here. I thought, oh, it's a bit uh, a bit like who? He was a footballer. Um, Charlie Nicholas was it? Was it around what, that time? Arsenal maybe player, Arsenal. Yeah, 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 Charlie Nicholas and um, the package of the album. It just looks looks you want to get stuck into it. the lyrics in there as well. And um, it's a brilliant title to- as well. So simple, but just a statement of intent as well. You know? <laughs> Definitely, I think yes. And um, th- then I also dug into it and listened to some of the B sides and things on the extended version. And you know, bells of Rumney and some of the earlier songs just done acoustically, just really interesting. You know, we talked about earlier around the protest and the hope, and in your yeah. work, and I think uh, Manny from the Stone Roses thanked Margaret Thatcher in a strange way um, for the unemployment that it gave people nothing to do, and then they turned to the creative arts, and and we had this sort of like wave of of music that was not only in protest but was just uh, spawned by the mm. fact that no people had nothing to do, yeah. and it sort of feels like in the current political climate that there should be more of that. Do you think there's any sort of artists right now who are capturing the times in music? Obviously, you know, we talk about you and your poetry and, mm. and things. Do you think there's any sort of musical artists that are capturing the time in the same way that The Alarm did in 84? It's an interesting question, really, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think they are out there, yeah. I mean, probably the younger bands, when you, when you think, I, I, you know, you see quite established bands, it's all a bit safe. It's all a bit safe and sort of, you know, uh, pe- you know, saving up for their pension type of thing a little bit. And I, I don't see that much risk taken in a lot of, you know, the, what people are writing about perhaps, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of certain people who, what, what you know. Sleaford Mods, Slaves, yeah. they're sort of the I ones I used to like Sleaford Mods, but I, I just don't quite like no. that sort of macho element to them yeah. sometimes a little bit. I went to a few of their gigs and I just, I, I like the way he writes the performance, but I, it's something about it, it's just, it's bummed me off a little bit. Okay. Yeah, probably wouldn't get a gig supporting them now but um, <laughs> um, Kate Tempest I quite like you know she can yeah. get out yeah, there and, and sort of speak about you know big issues um, yeah I'm trying to think as you mentioned slaves didn't you but I, I don't know educate me tell me a bit who do you think is out there speaking about these issues at the moment it feels as though it's the sort of the grime artists that are, yeah. you know think they're the ones that are most affected by you know the, the police cuts and, 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 and these sort of things yeah. so it feels as that that's probably the closest thing to it and I think that's you know a purely generational shift that it's not um, people with guitars, you know, with a call to arms anymore. Um, but the people with guitars are not really no. speaking about it as well, are they no. really? I mean, idols a bit, but I, I, idols, just, yeah. I can't quite get it again. It's just too, hold the guitars too high up and just too, <laughs> it's too messy to look at. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just, just a quick one. I, mean, I, did, I did see Stormzy at um, Glastonbury, wasn't yeah. it? And I, I did think it was one of the most amazing, you know, uh, uh, appearances because it was just him with with his voice and with the, the screens and things. And I just thought what he talked about, yeah, it was just right right on what was happening now. So I know I sound a bit old saying that, but I thought he was no, very... The ballet production, the, yes, the bank right, piece, the bulletproof vest, yeah. the vest, uh, yeah. You there know, was lots of things going on there. Yeah. yeah. So, Maybe that's it. And oh, he's only 25. It's, it's very, um, yeah. So, yeah, it answered the question. But I, I, I think our more established artists, we, we you know, get out there and say something. They've I got think. a voice. Yeah. Why aren't they yeah, using yeah, it? Yeah, platform. <laughs> so, yes. Can you remember where you first bought Declaration? And what sort of, was it? Yeah, well, um, I, I, yeah, but no, it was been a cassette, I think, actually. I, I was, I was in Swansea University then. Like I said earlier, Swansea University was this quite pivotal time of f- football, but as well as, um, you know, 
just dipping myself into, I remember Greek politics. What was that all about at 18 and 19? I remember going to lectures there and just drifting off. You're in about Plato and Aristotle. So um, I remember going to, it would have HMV maybe or Our Price in Swansea and getting the cassette to that album alongside um, Steel Town, Big Country as well. Um and so it was in university, yeah, just going back to my little tape to tape then. I remember that, you know, you had a tape to tape, you, re- you really were made. You could tape from tapes, obviously. And um, yeah, just sitting back and just sort of uh, glorying in it. Did you and Nicky share musical interests growing up? Or? Uh, not really, a little bit, no. We, we sort of diverged. Nick went into quite weird stuff, I would say, very sort of indie, you know, uh, C86, I used to think, I think it was the phrase. We, I was a bit older then because I... That period of me, I was coming out of, um, I was coming out of my rush phase, um, rush release, Grace Under Pressure in 1984, I think it was, which was a bit tinny and a bit keyboardy. So I was trying to find something else. So I, it was big country and forgettable fire was in 1984 as well as we talked about and the alarm. Um, so I was just going into a little bit, to me, it was quite new territory. It wasn't all guitars and, um, and Saxon riffs. It was, oh, I, I was cool now. I was listening to the alarm, you two, simple minds <laughs> sort of thing. So me and Nick, of course, is four years different. So it was a bit different. So and Nick had sort of meeting James and Richie at times. So it was all a bit, um, they went into quite weird territory. Yeah, I was still quite mainstream. <laughs> Have you listened to it recently and do you think it stands the test of time? Yeah, I do. I mean, as my 50-something now, it's, it's cynical and a little bit, oh, you know, it, 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 of course it's, it's idealistic and it's, um, but I think, oh, they must have been 22, 23, a bit older, right in that, you know, so, so great and glad, you know, so, so and yet, you know, I can remember lines, I can remember choruses. So I think it does, te- you know, uh, stand the test of time because it's not one of those albums where you perhaps just totally try one track and think, oh no, you know, it's like like some bands I, I, I listened to at that time. I, I think I think it's really worth a listen now and the ideas behind it. Yeah, yeah. I think pretty much every track could be a single actually on that album. Yes, yeah. Apart from the 32nd one, isn't it? The, the oh, beginning. Yeah, the yeah, start one, yeah. But, um, is it, and the Third Light, I think it's a Third Light, I don't know if that's an anti-war song now, which I didn't quite pick up at the time. I don't know, you know, talking about the graves on the hillside, etc. You know, so lots of little nuggets in there, I think. R- um, reminds me of um, The Cure, that song, the sound and even the vocal sort of. Right, I never thought of that actually, but yeah, yeah, I suppose The Cure were just around that time as well with, the, with their sort of stuff going on. So it was just a quite a very creative time you know um yeah yeah you talk about that it's obviously a legacy uh, um mm. of the clash as well but yeah. you said the acoustic guitar it almost feels as if it's uh it's bob dylan yeah woody guthrie yeah thinking back to it it, it is it is uh, maybe it's the acoustic guitars but this is a sort of sound in the mouth organ coming in yeah it's almost like they could just set up somewhere and p- perform it yeah it's very know? live and, yeah, yeah live and visceral and just yeah just a really it was really quite interesting to go back and as I said I went back and revisited some of the B-sides and the extended plays and Bells of Rumney the just Davis poem um I saw, and I think I saw somewhere that it was a it was a, a gig they did in 1984. Um, Dave Sharp did um, One Step Closer to Home, which I think ended up on another album. But that's a beautiful song, just him and acoustic guitar, you know, stripped back um, at, at a gig in America, I think. So, yeah, and I think it sort of sowed the seeds for some, you know, strength obviously came, which was a little bit more produced, wasn't it, I think, you know. Yeah, but to start off with that, I thought it's just a brilliant first album and um, looked cool, great package. 
Dave chose Sixty for Dolls last night. You've chose Declaration, another debut album. Um, do yeah. you think there's a particular sentiment that gets attached to debut albums? I'll still put on the first album of the Clash much more than you know, say, London Calling or Standing in Stair yeah. sort of thing. So I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's I think it's quite pure. Many first albums are just you know a, a pure sort of exploration of who they are. And it, and also it's like that struggle idea because most bands, you know, you have to struggle a bit, do your gigs, and then if you get a record deal and it comes out, and then you maybe get a bit more money and you get a bit of power and you get a bit soft perhaps, you know. It happens a lot, doesn't it, you know, with um, artists and uh, all sorts, you know, footballers, football yeah. players or whatever. It's that struggle and then it's a great moment. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think it's quite an interesting, that idea that the, f- the first of something is... Not saying usually the best. It's not obviously, you know, but um, it's something about it which they'll never replicate again. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and would you have seen um, the alarm on Declaration Tour or no. soon after? Or no, no, I n- I've never. I, I, I've done some work with Mike Peters over the years, which is nice. We, we rewrote. I say rewrote. Brought up to date Bells of Rumney, and I wrote new la- words to it. And Mike did a, the, the music to it, which was quite a lovely moment. And he recorded it up in. Um, in Rumney in the church up there which was for, for the BBC programme which was lovely so I um, yeah I followed his career um, and, and um, but I've never actually seen them as a, as a live entity as a band no you know uh, yeah it would have been good to see him on that tour I think yes so you were saying about um, I think you mentioned Budgie um, so what other sort of was there any other <laughs> sort of Welsh bands in your thinking for today or Oh right, good question. Yes, well, well, I mentioned Budgie, yeah, because I was into that sort of. It was to, uh, Tommy Vance's um, Freddie Rock show, which was that was like my Bible broadcast, my Bible podcast. That would have been Tommy Vance, the voice from Angels, if you remember. I don't. You probably know. You too. You're too young. You're too young <laughs> boys. Tommy Vance, this beautiful voice. Friday night, ten o'clock. I would go to bed. Listen to my radio, which I, I know I sound like an old grandpa now, sort of thing from my, on my radio. Um, so it was quite a lot of metal bands, but there weren't that many heavy, heavy rock bands from Wales. You know, Man obviously had, had been in the 70s, Badfinger, which I didn't know much about then. But gee, um, I, you know, Super Furry Animals came to mind. I thought, you know, they, they are sort of... Um, What's the album? Fuzzy Logic, is it? That's the one with all the cover. Yeah, Howard Marks. Howard Marks uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. So it's that sort of era of the... Again, uh, debut album again. Yes, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not going to mention the Manics, obviously, because that's, you know, yeah. Even, even though they could do with the publicity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but their well, first album, again, sums up a lot of stuff which they had been working on for years, really. Sort yes. of thing. Yeah. yeah. And quite um, obviously, uh, in a couple um, of months' time now, 20th anniversary of Manic Millennium, which... You were the first act on the stage that night. That was quite a weird. That, yes. That's got to be. You must have been shitting it in front of. Seven, yeah. Well, how many? No, were, no there was only no. about thirty thousand when I but was even there. So, but even so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirty thousand Manics fans and, and sort of people. Yeah, and it was all different actors at the time who would who were, who've now gone on to be really quite big. But they helped perform a, a, a poem that night. Uh, Matthew Reese, Rigia Aola. Um, Young Griffiths was there and it's like oh my god it was all these different um, trying to coordinate that I was glad when it was over really because poetry with music all those people there getting pissed on a on a Saturday night maybe or I can't remember what it was but um, yeah I was sort of glad it was over <laughs> really yeah but it was a great experience Cause at the time that was the biggest indoor yeah. arena 60 well 70 yeah, yeah. amazing really when you think of that only 20 years ago yeah um yeah, and a great lineup. You had Shaq, you had uh, Feeder, and Super Fury Animals. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a yeah, just a good night, really, of celebration of, of you know, Welsh music again, sort of thing. So, um, 
Yeah, God, 20 years ago, yeah. Yes. I've <laughs> brushed out of my head of a little bit, that one. Yes. <laughs> going back to 1984, what was the... Um, you know, going on in, in Welsh culture and, and the arts. Oh, yeah. It was quite a jagged society, I felt. It was them and us. It was, you know, people in the same village who were police and miners protesting. And as I said, I, I was in Swans University, so that was my first year. So I sort of, sort of, in a way, I felt freed from the valleys a little bit, you know, even though it's only an hour away. But Swansea, as I said, so... I remember, you know, going to like a post reading in Swansea University or I remember seeing Marillion, <laughs> the band Marillion, which again, you're too young to know. In St. David's Hall next month, actually. Are they? Yeah, yeah. Without fish now, with, with live orchestra, with fish. Oh, he's back, think, is yeah, he? Yeah, right? yeah. All right. Because in the universities, all the bands were touring those days sort of thing. And I remember seeing, you know, those sort of bands. Um, yeah. So, but... Ooh, I really wasn't into, I didn't know much about Welsh poetry. No, I was. No, I wasn't. I'll be honest. I was 18, 19. Poetry wasn't really fully in my radar. I was just trying to perhaps impress the females by going to a poetry reading and pretend I knew about it. But it, no, I wasn't. I wasn't a poet then. Mike Peters said that the alarm would sort of discreetly support the miners in, mm. in terms of giving them giving them some money, but he didn't want it to become like a Billy Bragg or, or, or these sort of things. In sort of university, you sort of feel like students are at the cutting edge of political protest. Was there sort of like uh, fundraising events or anything like that happening there? No, there wasn't no. in Swansea. No, I really don't remember any of of many protests or anything really to be honest no maybe because we were first years and it was just a little bit you know where's perhaps students are a little bit more aware as well maybe and you know but it, it wasn't no it was it was just quite a sort of a hedonistic sort of year if i remember rightly yeah and then i would come back home when it was it was all quite doom and gloom and dark and um yeah and i suppose culturally going back to, i i suppose i you know you mentioned billy bragg i suppose billy bragg to me was in my radar and you know uh you too. So his people outside of Wales, I think, were quite sort of influential to me music-wise then, um, which again is quite interesting. Like I said, that to me, I was my the alarm with sort of first Welsh album in my head that felt, and and I had never even been to North Wales. You know, where was Rill sort yeah. of thing from Blackwood? It seemed like again another world. So, so, so they opened up sort of things to me, but they what to me there wasn't much else going on in Wales really. Um, creatively thinking back, it, it took a while. You know, to get our bands, our, our actors and our writers and playwrights, I think it was more pushing the late 80s that they came to the fore, perhaps. Obviously, they, they were a Welsh Welsh band, probably the Welsh band mm. uh, at the time, but they weren't flag-waving. No. You mentioned that. So what is their Welsh identity and how did it sort of resonate with you? Yeah. Well, but again, yeah, hard to pin... I, 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 how would I associate them with Wales? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it was the Bells of Rumley. When I heard that, maybe it, that triggered a few things. I don't know what it was, really. You just knew they were Welsh because of, I don't know, they must have talked about it a bit in some of the songs. You would reference it, perhaps, on, you know, if you'd see them live. But, um, yeah, it, 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 which I think was quite a brave move in, in a way. They just sort of... They, they didn't sort of, um, I think they were outward looking. Yeah. Which is, you know, I know things change now when you can start small and celebrate Wales and then go out. But I think at that time, I think it was it was quite hard to break break out. And they had yeah. like quite a considerable transatlantic success. Yeah, that's and right. I think, you know, the five track EP. And tour in America. Yeah. I, I think there's sort of parallels when you say about identity and going back to Welshness and all that sort of thing. Like with Oasis and the Manics in terms of their early years, you know, definitely made them Generation Terrorist. It was about getting away from your hometown and getting out from where you live. And yet, you know, both absolutely celebrate the, you know, the fact they're from Manchester and from yes. Wales. You know, obviously yeah. you and the Manic still live local and 
I suppose you've never sort of considered any, you know, this is home, you know, you've never, you've loved it all these years. Um, I would say I always loved it. Like I said, when, after after university and I came back, I felt it really quite restrictive and I didn't like this. It was quite, you know, it was, it was uh, get drunk, have a curry, play rugby, have a fight sort of culture a little bit, which I didn't like. I didn't, I wasn't into all that. Um, so I then that's when I decided to, to to leave and go to America. So I sort of rejected Wales, really, in that sort of. But then you know you come back at a different age, different level, perhaps. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I still think we've got huge problems in, in in our society, I suppose. But I I do like living where I live because of the you know, the mountains and the sort of peace here and just yeah. Um, I could never I just couldn't live in a city now. When I was younger, it was Chicago. I, I lived just outside Chicago, etc. But now, yeah, you know, I enjoy this. <laughs> More peaceful things, I suppose. Um, but, and I think Wales is on an interesting cusp of independence or not. Um, and people are so frustrated politically and, um, you know, uh, economically of, of, with, with Westminster and life that it's quite an interesting time to be creating again. So 20 years on from devolution, it's interesting to see where we are now, like sort of thing as well. So, One um, of um, Nicky's first phrase into lyric writing and sort of poetry, I think he gave to James, was a piece called Aftermath 84, written at the time. Was that a sort of collaborative effort or what was your response to that at the time? You know, Oh, like I said, me and Nick, we never really showed each other things in those days at all, really. No. So, um, no, I didn't even know. I, I, I wouldn't even know about that, that lyric, to be honest. No. Like I said, they, they were their own little entity, really. Nick would disappear into his bedroom <laughs> and um, we wouldn't see him for a day or so sort of thing. You know, he, he was quite, a, you know, a reclusive uh, and, so, you, and you, you were the sort of more musically minded. You had guitar lessons and Nicky didn't, is that right? Or? You know your stuff, don't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah, only because Nick, again, he was absurdly shy and, and socially awkward. So uh, Clive, I remember, is, was the guitar tutor. Um, my, my parents found, I think he's from Newport. I don't know how they would find a, a guitar tutor. In, and he had massive you know, fingernails on the one hand, yeah, classic yeah. sort of guitarist. It was amazing. Big, big old acoustic guitar. So obviously we both couldn't avoid if he'd come up and he would have to be paid sort of thing. So I would end up having to have the lesson. Nick would disappear and hide out on the roof or something weird like that of his bedroom. Um, and so that's where I, f- I learned my three chords really. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I always remember trying to show Clive and I've still got the thing here. Clive, I, I remember buying, buying this and said, Clive, I want to, um, I want to play Rush. <laughs> and I put, and he wasn't happy because he was, he was the old Dylan, um, Ralph McTell, um, genre. So it, it didn't go down well trying to say, I want to play Limelight or Spirit of the Radio by Rush. And we sort of party company after a while then. But it, it was, you know, he, he, he gave us or me that initial burst. I didn't even have a guitar. He would bring a spare guitar up. You know, we, you know, um, money was hard tight in those days. I remember my first guitar, which I, what? It's up in my room. Sorry, that one is. Yeah. Sorry, sorry not going to show you all my bore you with my uh, nostalgic objects. Uh, um, and I was an eighteen. I had passed my A levels, and my dad took me down to Cardiff, bought a Fender acoustic, which was seventy five pound, which in nineteen eighty one was a lot of money, really. You know. Okay, yeah. And I still got it now. So um, and I still play the same. <laughs> Same couple of songs. Yeah, so I was just about to ask, so, 30 years later, have, have you mastered Ross moving pictures, no. note for notes? No, exactly. I ended up... Um, That's quite advanced, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I might know my own little things, yes. So it is, but um, yeah, as I said, my, my, my son can, he can play Spirit to Radio. I just say, oh, play Spirit to Radio, Ethan, please. And uh, he does. So there we are. So somehow maybe I've, I've it filtered onto him. <laughs> my non-guitaring inspired him. <laughs> So what's next for you, Patrick? Oh, lots of little projects. I was juggling, really. Um, I can't really 
pin one down. I'm working working with Kieran Evans, a filmmaker who does the Mannix videos on a project about um, a mental health and young people uh, in West Wales, with National Theatre Wales. We develop in a sort of installation film play, which is quite quite interesting to be working with a filmmaker, really. So that's quite an exciting project. And, and I'm just always writing and developing things, but, you know, no big... Um, Huge announcements. Just just ploughing on what I do, really, keeping uh, keeping the wolf from the door. A follow up to the collaboration with John Rob. I hope so. Yeah, because it's gone, you know, quite quite well, really, and been received. People are sort of getting it. I, I thought, you know, poetry, maybe no one's interested in it, but yeah, people, it's been quite a positively received, and um, and, and it's a lot easier to pull together than working with twenty different musicians and bands. Really, looking back, thank you so much for your time today, Patrick. We really appreciate it. As we said at the start, um, yeah, it's been great to have you on. Great to have you talking about uh, the Alarms Declaration and obviously your your career today. Uh, yeah, and just one last thing. Uh, obviously, at the end of each episode, we celebrate um, the best up and coming new music. I know um, you're a fan of this guy yourself, uh, Ron the Racked, uh, Me Against Misery. Yeah, M- Matthew. Yeah, I, I'm really quite interested in the stuff he does. He works hard at what he does. He's again societally engaged with his lyrics, and um, yeah, it's just good to hear someone getting out there and got, got, got something to say, really. And, and I noticed on the on your vinyl sleeve, um, L- Lucy Purrington, who did your photography, is his fiance. That's right. Yes. yes, and they work together on images and, and music as well. So again, so much cr- create creativity out there in Wales and. It's great that you guys are celebrating it, really. And um, we're going to play a track called End Note. Um, so play that now. Uh, thanks so much, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Problem.